Dear Heavenly Father, inspire us from your word this morning, Lord, as we look into the wisdom of it and as we consider the glory of your majesty for all that you say and for all that you've done. For the words of wisdom you gave to Paul. Father, we thank you for it. We acknowledge that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of all things, the end of all things. That we play a role only as you permit and as you call us. But Lord, in your mercy and in your grace, you've called us to such wonderful things. Opportunities far beyond what we could ever imagine. I pray, Lord, you'd give us the heart to pursue them. As Paul did, as he walked the world in his day, preaching a gospel of foolishness. And as he called on men and women in a place like Corinth to live according to what they've learned. And then, Lord, in your wisdom, you gave us these things written so that we might know them ourselves. So that the word that Paul spoke in his day wouldn't fall from the face of the earth. It would persist forever as your word will. Lord, let this little church take all that it's given, the riches of what you provide, making the most of it for the days are short. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How about a little moment of review in 1 Corinthians 15? This is the chapter where Paul's teaching on resurrection. And he's right in the middle of that right now. You had the church in Corinth debating whether or not resurrection was even true. They had come under the influence of bad teaching. Someone had come in and taught them some bad things. And as a result, some in the church had come to think that the death of the physical body was the end of us. At least in the sense that we no longer had the prospect of living on earth, living in a physical body. No more enjoying the physical world. That was what they were being taught. No more walking, no more eating, no more drinking, no more enjoying the creation that God had made for us to enjoy. We were going to exist, if at all, just in some kind of disembodied spirit form. So therefore, there was no resurrection. God's promises of a kingdom and of a life in this kingdom, a life of perfection, of glory, all of that was void according to this teaching. Even worse, that viewpoint denied the resurrection of their Lord. It directly contradicted the gospel. By denying the reality of resurrection, they were saying essentially that Christ's own claims to resurrection couldn't be true. So they were challenging the very idea of a risen Lord. And in what Paul has done so far in this chapter, in the first section of chapter 15, he's responded first by that upfront expression of the gospel in its purest form. We looked at that on Easter. Then he moved out of that into some exhortation, really into some admonishment, correcting them, showing the contradictory nature of their premise to deny resurrection, to be those who claim to be Christians yet deny the essence of the gospel. And that led him into verse 19. This was a closing statement to his first argument. In verse 19, he says, If we, speaking of Christians, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If the power of the gospel dies when our physical body dies, then of what value was the gospel? How did faith in Christ lead to hope of eternal life, as the scriptures tell us, if that life, if our body never returns from the grave, if it's never replaced? Paul says, instead of being rewarded for that faith, Paul says we would have to be pitied for it if that were the truth. Because the rest of the world right now isn't hampered, so to speak, isn't constrained by what faith does to the believer. The rest of the world's enjoying their bodies. They are eating, drinking, drinking. And being married, they're engaging in all kinds of merriment 
indulging in their flesh, in other words. But we, on the other hand, by our faith, have restrained ourselves from those things, or we should. And for what benefit? Without resurrection, Paul says, then when our flesh is gone, we lose the opportunity to enjoy it. By definition, we'll no longer have it. So here's the world making the most of their flesh while they have it, and us, on the other hand, denying our flesh pleasure because we believe that's the thing to do, and yet we then aren't resurrected, so we'll never have the chance again. We would then be the most pitiful, duped, confused, and miserable group on earth if the gospel does not include the reality of resurrection. But that's not who we are, and that's not what our faith presents. We, as Christians, know that believing in Christ, our faith in Christ, is not about happy outcomes in this life, on this side of our death. It is instead a promise focused on the resurrected life, about what comes after we get our new body. That's why we deny our flesh today. It's in obedience to Christ's promise so that we might enjoy the new life we have in a new body in one day to come with greater reward as a result. We hope in resurrection because that is our reward. We hope in Christ, not in this life alone, but for the next. So, Paul now has illustrated the illogical nature of this position, maintained the truth of it, certainly. Now he moves to some instruction. So as I've said on several occasions, this whole letter is one of admonishment, that is, the combination of correction with teaching. And he's moving freely between these two modes in chapter 15. Little teaching, little correction. Little more teaching, little correction. Well, it's time now for some teaching. And in this next section we study today, you have what is arguably some of the most deep, some of the most interesting theology as it applies to both salvation and end times. If you want to use fancy words, it is theology of soteriology and eschatology, salvation and end times. Some of the most Interesting, maybe even inscrutable stuff you're going to find in all of the New Testament. Stuff that's found nowhere else in the New Testament is right here. So this is some serious teaching. Let's put our scholarly hats on here for a minute. Let's see if we can follow it. Verses 20 through 22, Paul says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, well, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. This is the soteriology of the teaching. Paul begins with where everything begins, with Christ. With Christ's work on our behalf. He says, when Christ was raised from the dead, he was the first fruits of those who have died. Now what he means is this, Christ was the very first human being to ever receive A resurrected body. The very first human being who ever died and came back to life in a new resurrected body was Christ. We know others in Scripture before Christ have bypassed death in some interesting ways. You might be thinking of men like Enoch or Elijah. And then, of course, there's those other men that in Jesus' day were seen to die and be resurrected in a sense, like Lazarus, those who came back to life. We we know of these stories, and yet, according to the testimony of Scripture, None of those prior examples are resurrection in the way Jesus himself initiated it. In other words, none of those people received a new, permanent, incorruptible body. They are not examples of resurrection in that sense. They are all unique examples of different things. Elijah and Enoch, for example, they present a mystery for us because we don't have the whole backstory on what happened to them after they disappeared from the scene. But what we do know from Scripture is they did not receive a resurrected body. Whatever else you might say about where they are or what has happened to them, 
we know by Paul's testimony that they did not receive a resurrected body prior to Christ. And Lazarus and others like him who came back to life as a result of both Christ's work and, for that matter, the apostles' work, those men, when they came back to life, still occupied the same corrupted, sinful body that they had before they went into the grave the first time. So though it was a true coming back to life, a true resurrecting in that sense, it is not resurrection in capital R sense because they have not escaped death entirely. Those men had to die again. I always like to think about what Lazarus' response was when he found out he was going to have to die again. You know, I'm not sure he really looked forward to the second go around, did he? So those people have not been resurrected in the sense of what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus, though, when he died, his body was just as dead as those other men. But in his resurrected form, he returns never to die again. And that is the fundamental distinction that we're talking about between what Jesus has done and what these other men may have experienced. His death, once and for all, ended death, both for him and for those who come in his likeness. He leads the way of salvation. He is the first of this new wave, if you will, the first fruits. And none could go before him in that way. He is the way and the truth. He is the door. No one enters but through him. Everything must start with Christ. So Paul sets up the premise first. Paul says, yes, in fact, Jesus did die and was raised. He, he did experience resurrection. He blazes the trail for us. And then in verses 21 and 22, this is the heart of the soteriology, the heart of the deep teaching Paul gives. He says, Jesus' death and resurrection was necessary to reverse the mistake Adam made in the garden. When Adam sinned, he placed himself in a sinful state. His choice to go against the word of God made him sinful. And with that fallen nature that he now created for himself, he is unable to reconcile himself to God from that point forward. His nature lacked the perfection that is required for fellowship with God. And once he lacked perfection, there's no way he could fix his own problem. Once your perfection is lost, you can't regain it. This is the essential reason why works cannot be a means to salvation. For you cannot reverse the past by something you do in the future. Think about like a test. If you had a course in college or in high school where the requirement for passing was 100%. Let's say the first test you take in the semester, you get a 99. You're close, but you're not perfect. Would you have any reason to continue in the course at that point? Why take test number two or three or four? Why take the final? Why even show up anymore? If the standard to graduate is perfection and the first test out of the gate is a 99, you're done. You fail. You cannot achieve anything in the future that can change the fact that you weren't perfect on the first test. That's the reality of what faces every human being. Adam sinned, creating imperfection. And from that point forward, he was incapable of correcting his own problem. Because he's short of the glory of God. And the nature that Adam had as a sinful man was just the beginning of the problem. Because God had decreed in the creation that those who would reproduce, animals and man, would do so after their own kind, as God stated. Which means, by his word, he instituted a principle of creation that says, you must produce what you are. And the fact that Adam had fallen in his nature and become sinful by his own act meant that every child he had would be made in his likeness, which is the likeness of sin. 
which is where we get the term original sin from. That's why you and I are born into this world in a sinful state from our very first breath. It seems quite unfair, doesn't it? We are who we are by how we were created, and we are in the likeness of Adam. We entered the life we have in a likeness that shares all of the negative traits that Adam created by his mistake, and there's no escaping it. And just like he produced after his kind, we are going to produce after our kind. There has never been a child born apart from Christ who entered this world without taking their first breath as sinfully as their last. Not because they did anything wrong in the womb, not because of their mental choice to sin as they came out of the birth canal, but because of their nature. They are who they are by nature. And so we are doomed by the same thing that doomed Adam, sin. So the death that Adam experienced and the death that all men have experienced since Adam is the consequence decreed by God for sin. Paul says in Romans that we die because we sin and all die because all have inherited the sin of Adam. We share in his penalty because we share in his nature. One man's mistake brought that consequence. Now, it is just so unfair, isn't it? There is this principle, though, that Paul says becomes very useful. In fact, incredibly important for solving the problem. The principle is by one man's action, a whole generation can be affected. Well, that's true for sin. We've just seen it by Adam's own fall, right? We're all where we are because of one man's decision many days ago. The fact that we entered into life predisposed to sin is a result of a man's decision made long ago. But by that same token, Paul says in verses 21 and 22, if you can accept that truth, if you can see it and recognize it and agree with it, that truth being by one man's choice, many are affected. Then Paul says by that same token, you can understand the power of the resurrection. Because Paul says, by one man's resurrection, we can all share in something as well. The principle is, one man set the human race on a course of death. By that same token, one man can make a way of escape for humankind as well. That being Christ. Christ came as a man for the express purpose of reversing the predicament created by Adam's sin in the garden. He was a new Adam, Scripture calls him, a man created just in the same fashion as the original one, so to speak. Remember, Adam's source was not another human being. Adam's source was God himself, fashioning the body, breathing life into him by the Spirit. Likewise, Jesus was not conceived in the way you and I are. He was conceived by the Spirit of God in the womb of a woman, taking the form of man. That Difference is all important. You may have wondered at some point in time, why do we have a virgin birth in the story of Jesus? Where does that fit in? Why is it even needed? Well, it's not sensationalistic. It's not designed just to create some interesting story at Christmas. The point of it is to disassociate Christ's origins from Adam. Christ does not come into the world bearing the likeness of Adam, for he's not born or conceived in the natural way of human beings. God interrupted that so that it's not connected to the nature of of Adam. Christ came into the world sinless because he came in not tied to his mother or his father's spiritual nature. So the virgin birth is all important. One of the reasons why the enemy has worked so hard to to discredit the idea of a virgin birth is because he understands theologically how important it is that we have a new Adam that was not corrupted, that went through life without falling to the temptations of sin. So he never adopted the nature of Adam. He never came to it in his own. He didn't have it at birth. He stood apart. And as such, he can become the beginning of a new creation in his likeness. 
So he lived a sinless life, thereby becoming a new Adam, which then gave rise to the possibility of a birth of new children in God. A family of men and women who share in his nature instead of sharing in Adam's nature. But of course, if that's going to happen, we have to find some way to be born into this new family as opposed to where we began our existence, being born into Adam's family. That, friends, is where we get the term born again. The scripture says by faith in Christ, we can be spiritually born again, birthed of a man who came without sin. And so we would share in his nature. Now, how do we actually make that new birth take place? Well, the scripture says it comes in two steps. First, we receive Christ's spirit at the point of faith. So the spirit side of us is made new in faith at the moment we believe. But later, we will receive a new sinless body whose origins also trace to Christ and to his sinlessness. And those things are made possible because of Christ's death and resurrection. Just as by his spirit, we are made new in faith, in our spirit. Also, by the fact that he gained a new body at the point of his death and resurrection, we too will gain a new body after our death and resurrection. Our new body will be made in the likeness of Christ's body, while our current body came in the likeness of Adam's body. You and I had one life lived in the likeness of Adam. We will have another life lived in the likeness of Christ. And just as Christ, having no sin, never dies again, we, like him, never die again. Christ's resurrection is the turning point for humanity. It is the antidote to death, Scripture says. When you and I are resurrected, when we get our new body, we will never think about death again. There will be no death like it is for Christ now. We will no longer have reason to fear it. We will no longer be under the penalty of it. Why? Because we will no longer be guilty of the sin that necessitated it. We've been born again into the family of Christ. That is why the Bible says Jesus conquered death. It's in the sense death having to be part of your future. When we are resurrected, when we come into our new bodies, the concept of death is gone for us forever. That's the glory of the resurrection. The death of the body as we see it now, is just a necessary step toward the resurrection, which then puts an end to death for us forever. He conquered the grave. He conquered death. He made it no longer an essential part of humanity for those who believe in him. So now Paul's going to raise the next question that I think you and I would raise if we had never heard this before, certainly. The next question we would naturally ask is, well, how do I get to that point? How do I get my new body? Anybody know a Christian who's already died? Plenty of us, right? Why aren't they walking around right now in a new body? That's the question. When do I see people in their new bodies? We know Jesus has his. He was the first fruits. But when does the rest of it happen? That's the next thing he wants to address. Look at verse 23. He begins to explain the timeline for when new bodies begin to appear. And this is where we move out of soteriology and into eschatology, into the end times teaching. He says in verse 23, but each... In his own order, speaking of when you will get your new body, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Let's pause there. Paul says there is an orderliness. There is a pattern to God's plan for resurrection. It's not willy nilly and it's not just happening around us all the time. There is a pattern and a schedule and each stage of the resurrection process happens in a certain timing. We already established, and Paul repeats it here again, that the very first human being to receive a resurrected body is Christ himself. No one was resurrected before Christ. 
By the way, as a little aside, that's why in the Old Testament we hear of a place called Sheol, the holding place of the dead. Spirits of those who died prior to Christ's resurrection had to go somewhere, but they couldn't get a new body because Christ hadn't died yet to get his. And they couldn't enter into heaven because the atonement of Christ on the cross hadn't even happened yet. Their sins had not been covered yet. But yet the saints had to be treated appropriately and the sinners had to be treated appropriately. What was God to do with these people while all of this waited? And Sheol is the answer. God places men in a place of holding. One side is pleasant for those who are saints and one side is torment for those who are not. And that holding place was the way things worked until Christ's death and resurrection. Now, since that date, the side of torment still remains. We call it Hades or hell. But the side of comfort, Abraham's bosom, it was emptied out when Christ left, sent him to heaven. He took free the captives that were there waiting to be taken with him. That's a little aside. Back to the main point. Paul says each stage of the resurrection happens in a certain timing. First, Christ. And then he moves to step two. In verse 23, he says the next step is reserved first for those who are Christ's. In other words, we would say it more simply today. We would say Christians. So the next group of people to be resurrected are Christians. Those who have come to believe in Christ since his day of resurrection. Paul says this group will receive their new bodies at Christ's coming. Now, this phrase is a source of confusion to many and mostly because people are not careful enough in their observations of the text. When we hear the coming of the Lord, that is not the second coming of Christ. Whenever the New Testament references the coming of the Lord, I'm going to use that term again to be clear, the coming of the Lord. Whenever you see that in the New Testament, that is a reference to the resurrection. You see it here. For one thing, Paul says the next step of the resurrection is at the coming of the Lord for those who are his, for the church. So the resurrection moment for the believers in the church is the moment the Lord comes for his bride, for the church. Now, Paul's going to deal with this in more detail here in a minute, so I'm not going to short-circuit the conversation. I'm going to let him get to it in his timing. We'll come to this more later. But I want to be clear, the coming of the Lord is not the second coming of Christ. Now, I know the word coming is in both, but that doesn't prove anything. That just proves it's easy to get them confused. The second coming of Christ is the moment he returns to earth to live here, to reign, to rule in a kingdom that will be physically located on earth when he will be the one and only king on earth. He is the name above all names and Israel will be the chief nation on earth. That is the promised kingdom that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are to receive and yet have not received as of now. That is the second coming of Christ. That is not the resurrection moment for the church. The resurrection moment for the church, as Paul will explain later in this chapter, is the moment when you and I get new physical bodies. And that does not wait for Christ's second coming. That precedes Christ's second coming. As I said, we'll look at that in more detail later. But Paul is at a higher point at this stage. He's skimming the details. He's at the top level, just trying to lay out the general timeline. Let's stay there with him. So he said Christ first, then the church at the coming of Christ. Then Paul moves forward in the timeline. Verse 24. He says, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Verse 24, Paul says, then the end. Now, in my English translation, we also see the word comes, then comes the end. That's how I read it. That's what my NASB says. But in reality, that word comes is not in the Greek. So if we were to read it most accurately from the original text, it would say, then the end. Then the end. Well, that just begs the question. The end of what? 
The end of what? Paul's brushing over a lot of details here. For the sake of brevity, he's just missing some things. But elsewhere in Scripture, we know what the end here refers to. In Revelation 20, there are two periods of resurrection described in that chapter. Two times or two phases, you might say, of resurrection that's planned for humanity, all humanity. And the Bible calls them, very simply, the first resurrection and the second resurrection. Well, the first resurrection is what Paul's been talking about up to this point. That's the one that begins with Christ. That's the one that then moves to the church, as Paul has already said. And though Paul doesn't address it here, we know from other scripture, it then goes forward from the church and it includes the Old Testament saints and it includes the saints who lived during the Great Tribulation and those who may be born in the millennial kingdom, in the thousand year reign of Christ on earth. There's even more being resurrected during that period of history. So taken from Christ's resurrection all the way through the end of the thousand year reign of Christ on earth, that entire period of history, that period is the first resurrection. It has several steps along the way, groups coming in different times, but collectively the Bible calls that the first resurrection. You can learn more about all of this if you are interested by taking the Revelation study that's online. In Revelation 20, as John is explaining how the kingdom will begin and end, He says this in verse four, he says, then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life, resurrected and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. John tells us that this first resurrection goes all the way through to the end of the thousand year reign of Christ on earth. It is the resurrection for saints only. It begins with Christ and it concludes at the end of the kingdom. But then in verse five of chapter 20, Revelation tells us that the rest of humanity doesn't get resurrected, don't get new bodies until the thousand years is complete. What's the difference then between the first and the second? Well, Easily put, it's the difference between believers and unbelievers. The first resurrection are stages in which believers from different points in history are receiving their new bodies. But at the end of all of that, as Paul says in verse 24, then comes the end. And what he means is this. Then comes the end of the first resurrection. Then comes the second resurrection. That's described later in chapter 20. It's at the end where Christ resurrects all the bodies of those who've been held in Hades, waiting for this moment. It's all unbelievers. They all stand before Christ for judgment. In Revelation 20, verse 11, it says this, I then saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. These who have been made to stand again, who have been resurrected, brought to life to be judged. They face this judgment on the basis of their deeds. And without faith in Christ, Paul tells us that the wages of our sinful deeds will always be death. So these, whoever they are, all who have lived from Cain until this moment, who have died in unbelief, will stand in their resurrected bodies, face the judgment that Christ will bring them, and they will all fail the judgment, for they will all have sin uncovered by the sacrifice of Christ, and that will put them all in the lake of fire. Resurrection isn't just for the believer. Resurrection is for all humanity. There isn't a human being born who will not one day have a new body. 
The only question for them is not whether they will have a body. The question is, where will they live? Where will they exist? The lake of fire is a place of dwelling. It is the home, the eternal home of the unbeliever, just as heaven is the eternal home of the believer. So it's never a matter of whether you'll come back to life. It's not even a question of of whether or not you're going to see something on the other side of the grave. You definitely will. And we will all have bodies in which to experience it. The question is, will you be in heaven or will you be in the lake of fire? That is the fundamental divide. That's the second resurrection. Paul jumps over that and what he says here, he says, then the end. And then he begins talking about where Christ goes next as a consequence of the end of his kingdom. And this is where it gets really interesting. Paul says at the conclusion of the kingdom, Christ hands back all authority to the father and the father abolishes all other power and authority in his creation apart from his own. This is such a fascinating insight into something very distant and otherwise unaddressed in Scripture. Let's see what he's saying. After Christ's second coming to earth, we know he sets up a kingdom and he rules. But his rule is limited to 1,000 years. That's it. 1,000 years. He will preside, Paul says, in this role as ruler over the earth only until such time as all his enemies have been put to an end. Till sin itself has been put to an end. Death has been put to an end. He will rule in that period up to that moment. We will rule with him. But that rule has a purpose. And when the purpose is met, the rule stops. His reign ends. Look at the next two verses, 25 and 26. Paul says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. This is the final act of Christ in creation. The greatest enemy of God is death and Satan, who is the source of it. And when they are finally crushed at the end of the kingdom, then all rule is abolished. Paul quoting from Psalms 8 in verse 27 gives us that statement from prophetic scripture saying this has always been the plan going all the way back to the Old Testament. But with all the pronouns in those verses I just read, it gets a little confusing, doesn't it? Let me put in proper nouns in replacement for the pronouns. and Let me see what you find. Verse 27 read with proper nouns for the father has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. But when the spirit says All things are put in subjection. It is evident that the father is accepted who put all things in subjection to Christ. You see the point? The father is putting everything in subjection to his son's authority. But it's clear enough that the father himself is not subjected to Christ's authority. You can't have the one who gave over everything to Christ be under Christ. So Paul's point is there is still an authority within the Godhead that Christ himself subjects himself to, which is the father. So when Christ has fulfilled his mission, when he's crushed every enemy of God, when there's no one left to defeat, there's no more point in his rule apart from the Godhead being all in all. And so the expression, this is a bit inscrutable. Not everyone's clear on what it means. Certainly not me. But this is the best I've come up with. It means that God, the father and God, the son and God, the spirit return to being expressed as a singular Godhead in terms of how they express themselves today. The Godhead is at work in its creation in different ways and in different places. But in this future day, once all authority has been 
accomplished, all authority has been met. There's no reason for that anymore. Now in the new heavens and new earth, God, the Father, Son, and Spirit work together as a singular Godhead in the temple in that new place, we're told. God is all in all, Paul says. I think that's the sense of it. But why does Paul raise this point here? Why does he mention this? For this reason. Christ came to earth, separated himself from the Godhead, specifically to live and to die and to be resurrected so that he could conquer the death, the enemy that prevents us from having fellowship with God. Once he has done that, once his life, death and resurrection has accomplished that purpose, then his reason for being Christ in that sense has gone as well. That means resurrection is the key to the plan of redemption. It proves his claim. It opens the door for us and it allows for rebirth in a sinless way. It all begins and ends with resurrection. That's what Paul says in Romans 8:11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. That's why we call ourselves Christians. That's why we have a hope. It is the knowledge that no matter what happens to you here, this body is temporary and a new and better permanent one is on its way. My best analogy is a rental car. If you think of your current body as a rental car, then you'll probably have the proper perspective in how you treat it, how much you value it, how much effort you put into preserving it and how much attention you give to it. Knowing that a permanent body, your true body, is not yet even here. On the other hand, you shouldn't abuse it because you, you may not have insurance. <laughs> and at that point, the whole analogy breaks down really fast. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the promise of a new body, for the Lord who made it possible, and for the hope that the word of God gives us so that we would keep these things in our mind, confident, assured, hopeful for what comes. And I pray, Lord, that what we will take from what we hear in this teaching, each of us in our own way, will encourage us, Father, to step out in greater courage and greater urgency so that we'll use what we've been given in this world without concern for what may happen, with abandonment, Father, that appreciates that a better place and a better body is on its way. Lord, thank you for the little church that we have that stays in, rooted in the word and concerns itself with following you. Bring us back next week with others who would join us, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.